As you remain standing, we'll continue our working our way through Paul's epistle to the Galatians, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 3. So if you have your copy of the Word, go ahead and take it up and let's read, beginning at verse 15 of chapter 3. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not into seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. In this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster, to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our good and gracious Father, as we come now to the preaching of Your Word, we acknowledge that apart from Your Holy Spirit, we cannot understand those things which are spiritually discerned, nor is there power in the preaching. We pray, therefore, and do earnestly desire that You would be pleased to send Your Holy Spirit to attend the preaching and to impart spiritual understanding so that our minds may be renewed and our hearts and lives would be sanctified as we embrace by faith and the Spirit bears witness to the glorious truth that we are heirs according to Your gracious promise. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And this we pray in His blessed name. Amen. You may be seated. This is a a difficult text, so may the Lord hear our prayers. Or at least there are some parts there. As I was considering this message this morning, every now and then it's nice to have an illustration that we can hang our thoughts on and help paint a picture, perhaps for us, of a father 
whose promise to his son is put on display and helps bring life to the word. And um, as I was doing so, I kept running across an illustration from an earthquake in 1988 in Armenia, a bad earthquake that ended up killing 25,000 souls. Um, and the story is told of one father who, in the midst of, in the aftermath of the earthquake, rushes to his son's school and the, and the entire building had collapsed. It was one of those pancake situations. It looks hopeless, but his father, who remembered a promise he had made to his son that he would never leave him, started digging and he digs and he digs, you know. Six hours turns into 12, into 24, into 36. And, and finally, after 38 hours of digging through the rubble, he cries out to his son, Armand! And he hears a voice, and it's his son. And his son responds. And it's one of those stories that kind of tugs at your heart. And we're glad that there are those mercies of God, and, and um, there are fathers who will sacrifice themselves and keep their word for their sons. But after reading the story, and even now sharing it with you, the truth is that it falls so short of the enormity of the reality of our relationship to our Heavenly Father in His Son, Christ Jesus. As Paul wrote back in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. But Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The Word of God teaches us that this life that we now live as Christians is not our own. It is in reality the life of Christ. Such is our union with Christ and our identity in Christ, the very Son of God, that this rules out the possibility that our salvation could depend upon any condition that we as believers could fulfill. Consider John 3.3 3, as Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. Jesus answered him and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You all remember the story. Here, the phrase born again could also be rendered born from above. And Nicodemus takes us immediately to the obvious point. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And the obvious answer is no. There is nothing that Nicodemus could do to make this new birth from above happen. And so Jesus continues to explain to Nicodemus, Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And this illustrates the main point that Paul is making to the Galatians. There is nothing we can do to cause our justification or enhance our sanctification. It is a gracious gift of God in Christ that we apprehend by faith, and that faith is itself a gracious gift. Christ is the author and finisher of our faith, as we read in Hebrews 2.2. 2. 
Christ is the object of our faith. And so whatever faith we have springs from and is rooted in Christ who dwells in us. It is all of faith, all of Christ from first to last, from beginning to end, and even from before the creation. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. At the beginning of creation, in the midst of articulating the consequences of our first parents, failing to keep the covenant of works with God, God inaugurates His covenant of grace with this promise. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so as we step back and see from this text, God has a plan for redeeming His people. He will establish two lines. The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And we also see God's Gospel promise in that the seed of the woman will defeat, will bruise the head of the serpent, and that the promised seed is Christ, the Son of God. From the beginning, God has been writing the story of redemption in the lives of His people, and He is doing so perfectly, according to his, the perfection of His holy will and at the perfect time. So turning our attention now back to the text of Galatians, we will consider three points. First, Paul makes here the permanence, makes obvious, makes a case for the permanence of the covenant. Secondly, the purpose of the law. And thirdly, our position in Christ. First, the permanence of the covenant. Reading again now from the New King James Version, perhaps a bit easier. Verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And if you're reading along in the New King James, you even notice that they interpret the singular seed there with a capital S as it refers to Christ. Paul is continuing his defense here of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by comparing a man-made covenant to the covenant God made with Abraham. Paul here is using a human example, and this we know from the phrase, I speak in the manner of men. It is likely that the man 
man's covenant that Paul has in mind is something like a covenant for inheritance. What we might call a last will and testament. A will is not a contract. It does not set terms that the various parties are obligated to fulfill. Instead, it simply declares what one party intends to do. Typically in this arrangement, the will or covenant for inheritance specifies what part of the estate the person is bestowing to someone else. It is a grant, often to a family member, rather than some sort of bargain. The kind of human covenant Paul has in mind is irrevocable. Once it is signed, sealed, and delivered, it doesn't change. In the case of a will, once a person has died, there is no further opportunity to make changes. It can't be abrogated or annulled. It can't be amended or adjusted or added to. It is legally binding as it stands. And the point of Paul's argument here is that if a man-made covenant is unchangeable, how much truer is this of God's covenant established with Abraham? Paul is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. What holds true in a human court has even greater force in the courtroom of Almighty God. The Abrahamic covenant was properly established by God, not on the basis of a handshake or a signed paper contract. If you remember, it was articulated by the Word of God and it was sealed in blood by a covenant ceremony recorded for us in Genesis 15. So he said to him, God said to Abraham, bring me a a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And it came to pass, when the sun went down, it was dark, and that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Genesis 15. The animals were sacrificed and parted, and God passed between them, thus validating His covenant in a legally binding way. In establishing His covenant this way, God is picturing for and saying to Abraham, My promise to you is sure. If I should violate the terms of this covenant, let it be done to me as has been done to these animals I now pass through. Paul's point is that what God covenanted to do for Abraham would remain in force forever. Once God duly established His covenant, it could never be annulled or amended. It was permanent. Paul continues to explain the importance of this permanence by looking into the parties of the covenant made with Abraham. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say into seeds, as of many, but as of one, into your seed, who is Christ. As a careful student of Old Testament Scriptures and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul reveals to us that in the promise made to Abraham and to his seed, the word seed is singular. Paul knew and believed that every word in Scripture was God-breathed and 
trustworthy, and so he was able to see that the word seed in its collective singular form referred to Christ, Christ Jesus being the true seed. He is the party to the covenant made with Abraham. The covenant was all about Jesus. It looked forward to His coming coming in fulfillment of the promises. That is why Paul could say that the Scripture preached the Gospel beforehand to Abraham. What God promised Abraham was the good news of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that all the nations on earth are blessed. This shows how God's covenant with Abraham touches us. And while we don't have to be biologically related to Abraham to claim his inheritance, since the covenant promise was really for Christ, then when Christ is in us and we are in Christ, then the promise belongs to us. As we understand this, the inspired scriptural use of the collective singular seed becomes a beautiful picture and helps us to further embrace the truth that Paul reveals in 1 Corinthians 12. For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Having explained the permanence and nature of the promise made to Abraham, Paul concludes his argument. In this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God and Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. And as we read Exodus 12, we see that the promise of the covenant with Abraham came some 430 years before the law was given to Moses. And when the law came, it did not annul or replace or amend the promise made to Abraham so as to make it null and void. And if we become children of God, we become children, we become children of our father Abraham. And if we do so by law keeping, Paul indicates that it is no longer a promise. We have to follow his logic here. But what God gave to Abraham was given by promise. And God always keeps His Word. It is unbreakable. Salvation in Christ does not rest on a law that we inevitably break. It rests on a promise that God cannot break. God has promised forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has promised eternal life to everyone who comes to Christ in faith. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's covenant promise is irrevocable. It stands firm forever. But if this is so, then what of the law? Which brings us to the second point, beginning at verse 19, where we look at the purpose of the law. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise of faith, promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. 
But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In order to show the importance of the law in the Christian life, John Calvin wrote what has become known as the threefold use of the law. The first use of the law is that of a mirror. In other words, it reveals to us our sins and therefore our need for a Savior and so serves as a schoolmaster who drives us to Christ. The second use of the law is the restraint of evil. While the law cannot change the human heart, it can, however, serve to protect the righteous from the unjust. And the third use of the law is to reveal that which is pleasing to God. The Christian delights in the law as God Himself delights. Jesus said, If you love Me, keep My commandments. In answering the question, what purpose does the law serve? Paul provides here two answers. One in verse 19 and one in verse 22. Which both correspond to the first use of the law. In one sense, the first use of the law is temporary. The law reveals sin only for a certain period of time until the seed which is Christ should come. In another sense, we see that God's law is also eternal. It is a perfect, permanent moral standard for God's people. It was known to Adam and it will last for all eternity because it is based upon the very character of God. Paul is here focusing on the temporary nature of the law and upon its limitations. To Paul... The limitation of the law is clear in part because it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. It is difficult to know precisely what this means or how exactly it fits into Paul's argument. Angels are not specifically mentioned in Exodus 19 where God gives the law to Moses, yet Moses does mention angels in Deuteronomy 32.2 shortly before he died. And David also makes mention of these angels in Psalm 68. And Acts 7.53 as well as Hebrews 2.2 indicate the angelic role in the giving of the law. As Paul considered the role of angels in the giving of the law, and, and this is speculation, perhaps he was addressing an argument that the Judaizers were making in, in favor of law-keeping. Perhaps they were using this to try and convince the Galatians that since the law was given through angels, it carried added authority. But to Paul, the angels added nothing. In fact, they helped make his point. Since the law was delivered to Moses through the intermediary role of angels, then it is obvious that the law is secondary to the promise that was given directly by God to Abraham. If others of you have other ways of interpreting that, feel free to let's have a conversation. But take that as speculation and is helpful if if the Lord wills. In verses 22 through 25, Paul confirms that the law is not contrary to or against the promises of God. Certainly not, he exclaims, as he then further elaborates on how the law, while it cannot bring righteousness, it does serve as a tutor. 
as a schoolmaster or a guardian guiding or preparing the soul for Christ. Unlike the promise, the law cannot bring life. If it could have, Paul argues, then the promise would have been unnecessary. For if there had been a law which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. I found this commentary by G.G. Finley where he's speaking of this verse 23. He describes the situation like this. The law was all the while standing guard over its subjects, watching and checking every attempt to escape but intending to hand them over in due time to the charge of faith. The law posts its ordinances like so many sentinels round the prisoner's cell. The cordon is complete. The The prisoner tries again and again to break out. The iron circle will not yield. The deliverance will yet be his. The day of faith approaches. It dawned long ago long ago in Abraham's promise. Even now its light shines into his dungeon and he hears the words of Jesus, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go in peace. Law, the stern jailer, has after all been a good friend if it has reserved him for this. It prevents the sinner escaping into a futile and elusive freedom. End quote. The law has, after all, been a good friend. To further consider the usefulness of the law in this manner, consider these words from John Stott. Not until the law has bruised and smitten us will we admit our need of a gospel to bind up our wounds. Not until the law has arrested and imprisoned us will we pine for Jesus to be set free. Not until the law has condemned and killed us will we call upon Christ for justification and life. Not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. The truth of the matter is that we are a proud lot And we think too highly of ourselves and tend to minimize the wickedness of our sin. In our flesh, our identity is that of a weak and foolish sinner. Let us all be thankful that faith has come in the person of Christ and we belong to Him and in Him we find our true identity. Paul's third and final point brings these truths together and reminds the Galatians who they are in Christ. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many as of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is the climax of Paul's argument in chapter 3. He has explained that the law is a tutor or a guardian. And this may cause us to think perhaps of underage children, those who have not yet reached an age where the full privileges of their family position is known to them. And this is exactly how the Judaizers saw them as second class Christians. Little ones in need of the law 
But Paul is saying, no. You are complete in Christ. Your justification is through faith. Your union with Christ is through faith. The blessings of Abraham are received through faith. As the Apostle John wrote, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are children of God. Consider that. We are children of God. Some forms of liberal theology teach the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. The idea is that since every single human being is created by God, we are therefore all sons and daughters of God, and God is our Father. But sonship is a privilege granted specifically to those who come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Although God is creator of all and ruler of all and judge of all, He is Father only in this sense of His only begotten Son, Jesus, and of those who are in Jesus. All others are of the seed of the serpent. In verse 27, Paul reminds the Galatians that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Having in baptism professed their faith in Christ, they were thereby devoted to Him and had, as it were, put on the uniform of Christ and declared themselves to be His servants and disciples. And having thus become members of Christ, they were, through Him, owned and accounted as the children of God. As the Westminster Confession of Faith 28.1 articulates, baptism is ordained by Jesus not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto Him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of His ingrafting into Christ of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of His giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. Paul is reminding them that when they heard the Gospel preached to them, and when they believed, and when the Spirit was imparted to them, and when they were baptized, they became inheritors in a new identity. An identity without any deficiency or further requirements. They had put on Christ, and as Paul further clarifies in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Within this new spiritual family, no one is excluded by virtue of ethnicity or social position or cultural status or even by sex. The categories that divide us most, race, rank, and sex, are no source of division touching our identity as sons and daughters of God. And this may have really struck at the heart of some of the Judaizers. Consider this first century benediction used by certain Jews. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. 
But one of the reasons Paul opposed the Judaizers so strenuously was that they were drawing extra-biblical boundaries within the church. Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other. The equality within the church that Paul is revealing is not the kind that obliterates every ethnic, social, or sexual distinction. The church is not a colorless, classless, androgynous society. When we come to Christ, we do not cease to be Asians or Africans, owners or employees, or men and women. Our unity in Christ establishes a fundamental unity within which our differences can be cherished. For example, Paul urges Philemon to receive the runaway Onesimus no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Men are still called to lead a church as officers, and Christian men and women have distinctive and complementary roles in their home and in their marriage. And since ethnic, social, and sexual distinctions continue and do not divide us in Christ or determine our standing as children of God. We should see our oneness in Christ, the unity of the body, and our mutual interdependence as a cause to praise God in His created order and in His revealed order. And as we turn to verse 29, we see that God's new humanity in Christ is not just for the here and now, it is for eternity. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This verse establishes the Christian's identity in relation to history, in relation to God's deity. We are children of God. In relation to humanity, we are brothers and sisters, one of another in Christ, part of God's children, part of His family. Simply astounding to ponder is this truth. To belong to Christ is to belong to the whole family of God. The communion of the saints down through the ages. And we are in union with Christ. As we are in union with Christ, we are made recipients of the promise made to Abraham and his seed. As sons and daughters of God, we become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. This means we will inherit everything God has promised to give His children. Forgiveness of sin. The hope of heaven. Eternal life and everything good. No good thing will He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And this we all do as we walk by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we conclude, let's be encouraged and rejoice in God as the children of God and as His heirs according to the promise. Confident knowledge in our identity in Christ should not leave us unchanged. Therefore, consider these two brief exhortations from Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Our hope that we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ should manifest overflowing joy in our lives. We are to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. God's people should be characterized by a deep abiding joy. If this hope does not seem real to you, if joy is a stranger 
in your life. Strive in prayer and meditation until God makes this real in your life. You are a child of God. In Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. In all of your fears, in every trial, in every overwhelming struggle, let the solid rock under your feet be the gospel promise that you are a child of God through faith in Christ Jesus and heir in His kingdom. Consider this truth often. Let His oath, His covenant, His blood support you in the whelming flood. When all around your soul gives way, Christ then is your hope and stay. And you can glory with hope in every tribulation, knowing that you are a child of the living God in Christ Jesus is your elder brother. There is no better family position in all of creation. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the word which you have preserved and given to your people. We marvel at the wonderful truth that we are made heirs of our great God in Christ Jesus. O most merciful God, work the knowledge of this truth in us such that we are more and more worthy of this calling and emboldened thereby that we may stand fast in the gospel, whether in tribulation or in peace, and rejoice in the hope of glory, a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us by Christ Jesus our Lord. For we pray in His name. Amen.